I can remember when uh, I was new to the faith, I had, and I still do, had a great zeal and passion to share the gospel with whoever, uh, whenever. And a little time, there are a lot of times when I got a little over uh, my head. Uh, I remember one time when I was in San Francisco with uh, Pastor Antonio and a few of the members of the church. Uh, this was some, some years ago. Uh, we were at Fisherman's Wharf, and I was surrounded by five Muslim women uh, trying to talk to them. And I remember talking to my brother after, and he said, yeah, Martina said, um, should we go help him? And Pastor Antonio said, nah, he got it. And uh, I remember uh, being in that conversation just uh, scared for my life or, you know, you have these, these five women surrounding me uh, asking me questions about uh, doctrine and Christian theology. Um, but one of the questions or a few of the things that we talked about in that conversation I can remember is uh, they were giving me reasons why they can't accept the claims of Christianity, uh, they were talking to me about why uh, Christianity uh, is is incoherent in, in their mind, and it's illogical, and it doesn't make any sense compared to uh, Islam and a Muslim worldview. And as we were talking, here were some of the reasons why they told me that uh, they couldn't be a Christian, they couldn't accept the claims of uh, Christianity, and... Uh, all the things concerning the Bible are not true. Here's a few reasons. Uh, one said that she can't accept the doctrine of the Trinity. And if you've ever talked to any Muslims, uh, that's one of the first things that they bring out is the doctrine of the Trinity is highly illogical. Uh, how can you worship one God and say that this one God is three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are these three persons uh, that is the one God. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, why not just say three gods? And so we, we went a little bit on talking about the Trinity and why it is necessary and why it is, in fact, logical uh, that God is one in essence and three in persons. Another reason why uh, they said that they can't accept the claims of Christianity is because they believe that the Bible has too many errors. Uh, that's an argument that many, not just Muslims, but atheists and whoever like to make, is that the Bible has too many contradictions. Uh, this contradicts that, and that contradicts this. Uh, the Bible is not infallible. It is not inerrant in, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it is not God-breathed. Uh, so there's just too many errors. There's too many translations uh, from the uh, original text. And how do we even know that what uh, those men penned is actually what they wrote, is what one told me. So we had a conversation about that. And this last reason that they said why they couldn't accept the claims of Christianity is because they said the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement is one of the most horrific things about Christianity. And in fact, when they said that, that stumped me for a second because I didn't necessarily understand what they were saying. They said that your theory of what happened on the cross is unacceptable. 
It is penal substitutionary atonement. And what that simply means is on the cross, Jesus Christ was our substitute. And as our substitute, he paid the full payment uh, that we owe to sin or that we owe to God. He stood in our place and he bore the wrath of God and he exhausted and appeased the justice of God. They said, I can't get with that. That sounds like the father sends his son only to butcher his son, only to pour out the entirety of his wrath upon his son. And it just sounds like a mean God. It just sounds like a God who is not all loving and all compassionate. And when we left that conversation, I was, uh, I can remember asking myself uh, this one question is what actually happened on the cross? It stumped me for a long period of time is what actually took place on the cross? What actually happened? And as I began to study this issue, I quickly discovered how many different theories there are of what actually happened on the cross. There are many different opinions of what people think happened on the cross. Let me just give you a few. The first theory out there uh, and if you were part of the Word of Faith, uh, deep in the Word of Faith church back in the day, you will know this one. It's called the ransom to Satan theory. The ransom to Satan theory. And this view sees the atonement of Christ as a ransom paid to Satan to purchase man's freedom and release him from being enslaved to Satan. We are enslaved to Satan And there is a ransom that needs to be paid to the devil. It is based on the belief that man's spiritual conditions is in bondage to Satan. And that the meaning of Christ's death was to secure God's victory over Satan. Not simply over sin, but over the devil. There is another one called the example theory. You might have heard this before, the example theory, where this view says the atonement of Christ um, simply provided an example of faith and obedience to inspire men to obey God. When Christ was on the cross, he simply was our example. He simply was one who was proving that he had enough faith and obedience to God, and thereby when we look at the cross, we are not to see one who is paying for our sin, but one who is showing us what it means to have faith and obedience to God. Those who hold this view believe that man is spiritually alive. We believe that man is spiritually dead. And that Christ's life and atonement were simply an example of true faith and obedience and should serve as inspiration to men to live a similar life of faith and obedience. That's heresy. Christ was not on the cross to show us 
what it looks like to have faith and obedience to God. He was on the cross because he bore our sin in his flesh. That is why Christ was on the cross. And that is our view. That is, I believe, the biblical and orthodox view. The view of penal substitutionary atonement, again, says that Jesus on the cross stood in our place, condemned he stood. He stood in the place of sinners and he was punished to satisfy the justice and wrath of God. We have sinned and because we have sinned, that sin needs to be punished. And because we can't in and of ourselves bear the full weight of that punishment, we needed a substitute. We needed one who would come in our flesh and do what we could not do for ourselves and has offered to God a proper sacrifice and fully exhaust the wrath of God. But it is that last view that while we amen and say yes and nod our heads is the view that many find horrifying. Many find that this view is or distorts the being of God. To say that God had to offer himself up as a sacrifice and strike his son on the cross amounts to what they would say, cosmic child abuse. It's child abuse that the father on the cross strikes down his son by his wrath. There's others that say, well, God can do it any other way. He can forgive us any other way. Why did God have to offer up his son in in order for us to be forgiven? Why couldn't God just forgive us? Why did the father have to offer his son? Why did he require a blood sacrifice? Others would say, well, how can one on the cross pay for the sins of all people? How can this one sacrifice pay an infinite amount of debt that we owe to God. Maybe, maybe you've asked that yourselves. How is this sacrifice good for eternity and not just for a few years? So friends, this morning, I ask you the same question that I asked myself over seven years ago. And that is, what happened on the cross? What actually happened on the cross? Did Christ, was Christ simply on the cross to show us uh, how we are to obey and have faith in God? Was he on the cross to pay for the penalty that we owe to Satan? So what actually happened on the cross, saints, is the question that is before us this morning. And to help us answer that question, I want us to took to the, turn to the book of Zechariah. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Zechariah. <clears throat> Zechariah is in the Old Testament. <clears throat> it is one of the later uh, books in the Old Testament. If you go to Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, and you uh, 
skim over a few pages, you'll find the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. And if you are there and when you are there, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Zechariah, and if you are there, let's consider verse 13, or chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13. <clears throat> we will be dealing with just verse 7, but we will also read verses 8 and 9 for context. This is the word of the Lord. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. Saints, you may be seated. This morning, I have just two points I want us to consider in just one verse, and that is point one, the sword, and point two, the shepherd. Number one, the sword. Number two, the shepherd. And these two points are going to help us answer what happened on the cross. We're going to get into the what is called the metaphysics of the cross and all that details in the cross. And saints, when we consider the text or our text this morning, there are many verses in the Bible that upon reading strike fear in the hearts of men. There are a lot of verses in the Bible, if you haven't noticed, that upon reading strike fear in the hearts of men. One can point to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, a text that we all are familiar with, are we not? Where the Lord says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a scary verse, is it not? That is a frightening verse. One can turn to Genesis chapter 7, verses uh, 17 to 22, where we have that vivid picture of God Destroying wicked men on the earth by water. We've, we heard uh, a wonderful sermon by Pastor Antonio a few weeks back or months back on this where God pours out his wrath upon uh, the wicked men on the earth and utterly destroys every single person upon the earth save for eight people. And then likewise, one can turn to the opening words of our text this morning. Frightening words that we have before us this morning. If you have your Bibles, consider the opening words of verse 7. The word of the Lord says, Awake, O sword. Awake, O sword. If you haven't yet, feel the full weight of that statement, for that is a frightening statement that we have. Awake, O sword. And let's consider these words with this three questions. Number one, or question one, 
Who is speaking? Who is the one that is saying, awake, O sword? Well, the one who is wanting this sword to awake is no mere man. It is not one who is like you and I that is saying, awake, O sword. We have to ask, well, if it's not one who is like us, then it must be some sort of warrior or fighter that's beckoning this sword to awake. And the answer is no. It is not some warrior or fighter that is asking for this sword to awake. It is not even some king or ruler or some potentate that is saying, awake, O sword. It is no one like you and I. So who is speaking here? The one who speaks is God himself. The one who speaks is the God of heaven and earth. It is God who is speaking in verse 7. Specifically, it is the Father that is speaking. It is the Father that is asking for this sword to awake. It is the Father that calls forth for this sword to awake. Which leads to our second question. And that is, what does this sword symbolize? What does this sword symbolize? What does it mean for God, the Father, to say, awake, O sword? What does this sword mean? And if you've noticed, the use of the words in this verse are very interesting. Look, if you will. It says, awake, O sword. It seems like God is speaking to his sword as if his sword had ears to hear. Awake, O sword. So is this sword creaturely like us? Does this sword have ears? And it hears the father calling for it to awake. How are we to handle this phrase, awake, O sword? Well, what we have to notice is that it is God who is saying, awake, O sword. But we aren't to think that the sword itself has ears to hear. That the, that, the, that the sword is a blade with a handle, and on the side of the blade it has ears. And it's hearing God say, awake. But rather what the Bible is doing, it's accommodating itself for us. It is using words that we understand in order for us to understand the severity of what's happening God stoops to where we can understand. So this sword that is being spoken of is not meant to be taken like it has ears to hear. But rather it is the Lord that is opening up our ears. It is not the sword that is that the, that the Lord is wanting to awake, but it is us that he wants to awake. So what does this mean then? Well, this awakening of the sword is to grab our attention. It is to cause us to pause. It is to cause us to ask what in the world is going on. The God who moves and gives us our being. The God that we owe our very existence and essence to is asking for this sword to awake. What is happening? This image of the sword is speaking of God's justice. This sword represents the justice of God. 
And in the Bible, this image of a sword is often used to symbolize God's judicial power and authority, but not just simply to tell us that God is powerful and God is the God of justice, but also it shows us the very striking down of which God uses the sword. It shows us his power and doesn't just simply tell us his power. The Bible is not interested in you knowing that he is powerful, but the Bible actually shows you how powerful he truly is. And saints, God's justice, when we consider the doctrine of God's justice, is expressed in two ways. God's justice is expressed in two ways, and this is very crucial for us to understand in order for us to understand the rest of the verse. God's justice can be expressed in two ways. Number one, God's justice can be expressed in a positive way. God's justice can be expressed in a positive way. And we will see that on the final day of judgment. When we stand before God, God will count us as righteous in Christ. We will be justified positively in Christ. He will not turn his face away from us because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But also, there is a negative way in which God expresses his justice. There is an awful and terrible way in which God expresses his justice. And in this text this morning, saints, God's justice is being expressed in the most awful and terrible of ways. In the most negative of ways, God's justice is being expressed. The sword of God's justice, when it is wielded in a negative way, the result is an outpouring of God's wrath. When God's justice is poured out in a negative way, what we see is God's wrath on full display. Does this verse now scare you? The sword is being called in a negative way. And what will be poured out when God strikes down whomever is his divine wrath and anger? We read of this sword in the book of Genesis, do we not? After Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, what was there that covered the garden? What was there that caused uh, people to think twice in trying to re-enter the garden. It was a flaming sword. You get close to that sword, you will be utterly destroyed. There was no way of entrance back into the garden because a cherubim was there and there was a flaming sword that surrounded the parameters and the perimeters of the garden. If any man was going to attempt to try to work them way, themselves back into the garden, they would be utterly destroyed by this flaming sword. We read of this sword in Psalm seventeen thirteen. The psalmist says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. The psalmist is asking that the Lord deliver his soul from the wicked people. But how will 
The Lord deliver his soul from the wicked people. The psalmist says, confront them and subdue them by what? By the swinging of your sword. Swing your sword, my Lord, and bring them down by your wrath. The sword, this sword that is being uh, spoken of this morning is also pictured for us in Revelation 19, where we have that one, that rider on the white horse who out of his mouth strikes down the nations. But what comes out of his mouth? A sword. It is a sword out of the mouth of this rider on the white horse that will strike down nation and nation and nation upon nation. Every single one who is in disobedience to God will be stricken down by his sword. In a nutshell... God's sword is meant for one purpose. There is only one objective when God calls forth his sword, and that is to utterly destroy every single thing that is wicked and evil. Everything that sins against his holy name will be stricken down by, stricken down by God's sword. It exists to condemn by utter destruction. When God calls forth his sword, saints, are you now frightened by the opening words of this verse? There's only one purpose for this sword, and that is to utterly destroy every evil thing that is in God's path. But we have to ask our third question, why is God's sword called to awake? Why is God calling for this sword to awake? What has provoked the wrath and anger of God to where he says, awake, O sword. What has provoked God's wrath? It is the evil of sin. It is the evil of sin that has provoked the Lord to say, awake, O sword. Why is God calling forth his sword to arise? It is because saints, Hear me now, our sin needs to be dealt with. That is why this sword is being called forth. It is your sin. It is my sin. It is every single one who has sinned in Adam's sin. God's righteous standard has not been kept. The majesty of God has been insulted. His holy name has been dishonored. And his justice demands that he punish those who have disobeyed him. His justice demands that he utterly destroy every single one who has disobeyed him. God's wrath, as it were, as Jonathan Edwards has said, is an arrow on a bow and it's pointed at everyone who is in love with their sin. Saints, do you understand when God says, awake, O sword, that sword is pointing at our hearts because we are sinners in Adam. We are the ones that have disobeyed his holy name. And the opening words of verse 7, saints, teach us this essential truth of who God is. Don't ever forget this one truth. In spite of all the things that you know about the doctrine of God, remember this. God hates sin. God hates sin. 
master that. God hates sin and saints. We live in a day where people have such a mistaken notion of the being, nature, and character of God. I'm sure if you have conversations with your friends about who God is, they might say, well, God is love. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He's full of grace and mercy. There is no room in his nature. There is no room in his being for there to be wrath and justice. If he truly is a God of love, a God that is patient and long-suffering. But saints, the scriptures are contrary to how we want God to be. We are not to impose our own ideas of how God is to be upon who God really is. As Stephen Charnock has said, although we cannot comprehend him for who he is, we must not fancy him to be what he is not. We must not treat God as a God whom we want him to be. He is a God of love. Amen. He is gracious. Amen. He is long-suffering. He is patient. He is merciful. Amen to all of that. But he's also a God that is holy. He's also a God who is a most pure spirit, whose pure eyes cannot look upon evil, cannot look upon sin. He is a righteous God, saints, which means that sin will not go unnoticed. He is an immutable God, meaning that in his being, in his essence, he cannot change. And if he cannot change, and he cannot change, it's dependent upon sin. It's wicked, it's evil. He's a God of justice, which means he must punish sin in the flesh. He must do this. His justice demands it. And the way that God punishes sin in the flesh is by utterly destroying sin along with the flesh. He doesn't just send sin to hell. He sends the sinner who has sinned to hell. And friends, we should not be in awe. This should not strike us as evil. When we hear that God is a God of justice, that God is a holy and righteous God, this this shouldn't surprise us, saints, for have we not seen God's justice and wrath on full display during our study in Genesis? Have we not seen already God's justice, his uprighteous standard on display? Have we not seen the wrath of God against all ungodliness in Genesis chapter 6 and 7? Men have disobeyed God's holy law. And God wipes out every single person on the earth by water, save for eight. The entirety of the earth is utterly destroyed. Have we not seen, been in awe of the power and wrath of God in the last few weeks as Pastor Antonio has been painting for us that horrific scene of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Has your stomach not turned when you hear of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah? But also, has it not turned to make you sick to your stomach to see God fully destroy, utterly destroy every single one? Mothers, fathers, children, little children, every single one is destroyed. 
by God rains down fire and brimstone upon these wicked cities. Each of these horrific events, saints, are reminders to us of what the Lord says in Isaiah 45, 7. Each of these reminders or each of these scenes, these horrific scenes, remind us of the Lord's words in Isaiah 45, 7. Babel, the horrific scene with Adam, Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. It is the Lord that brings down hell, fire, and brimstone upon wicked Sodom and Gomorrah. It is the Lord that caused the rain to engulf the entire world where only eight people survive. It is the Lord that brings these calamity. And someone might say in objection, say, well, how can a God of love be also a God of wrath and justice? It doesn't make any sense. Saints, we cannot pit and nitpick and put one of God's perfections against the other one. We cannot elevate God's love and then diminish God's holiness. It would be a wrong thing to do for God who is just and holy and righteous and who is our judge to wink at sin. If God was to wink at the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and not strike them down, would he be holy? Would he be just? But also... Who is man that God owes anything to them? Who are we that God owes us unconditional love? We all deserve one thing, and that is God's infinite wrath. So how can a God of love be a God of justice? Because he is holy. Because he is righteous. Because he is simple. Because love and justice are not Two things on the opposite sides of the being of God. God is lovingly just. He is lovingly merciful. And he is lovingly angry. Saints, if we know anything about God, and if we take anything from verse 7, the opening words, it is this, that God has called forth his sword in the most awful and terrible of ways. And when God calls forth this sword, when he strikes down the one by this sword, Sodom and Gomorrah will look like Disneyland. The, the engulfing of the entire world by water will look like Magic Mountain. Because this wrath will be utterly different than what we and what men have seen. Which leads to our second and last point, the shepherd. The shepherd. God has called forth his sword of justice to awake. Our sin needs to be dealt with, and God will deal with our sin justly and righteously. He will punish our sin by pouring out his sword of wrath 
Friends, there is no place where we can hide. There is no place where we can escape this sword. There is no place where we can turn and say, God can't see me here. His sword cannot find me here. And I like to think of it like this in our verses this evening or morning is as the darkness begins to cover us from head to foot. As the shadow of God's sword begins to cover our being. A ray of light shines in the darkness. The father has said, awake, O sword. But the next words are utterly mind blowing. Verse seven, awake, O sword. Against my shepherd. The man who stands next to me. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Saints, if the first few words of verse 7 were terrifying, the words that come after are utterly shocking, are they not? You see, if this was any other God, if this was any other God, the text would not read as such. If this were any other God, the text should read, Awake, O sword, against the sinner. Against the one who has sinned in Adam. Against you and me. But the text doesn't read like that. The text reads, Awake, O sword, not against the sinner, but against the shepherd. What? How? Why? But who is this shepherd? Who is this one that the Lord has said, I will strike down this one and not that one? Who is it? And friends, in order for us to identify the shepherd, we must identify who the man that stands next to the Lord If we discover and find out the man who stands next to the Lord, then we can understand who the shepherd is. It is that last line. If you look at your, if you look in, if you have a a copy of God's word that carries a world of theology, the man that stands next to me, this is what makes this verse utterly shocking, but also Utterly glorious. The King James, the new King James reads that last line, the man who stands next to me like this, the man that is my fellow. The NASB, the NSB translation reads it this way, the man that is my associate. All of these translations of this verse carry the same weight and are getting at the same objective truth. That the one who stands next to God is equal with God. And that's a better rendering of the text. Is the one who stands next to God is God's equal. It's the one who shares everything in common with God. It's the one who is 
consubstantial. He's co-equal and co-eternal with God. All of what it means to be God. This one who is the shepherd is by nature. The shepherd, friends, is the son of God. The one who stands next to the father, whom the father says, awake, O sword, against this one, is his son. It's his son. And saints, this is one of the clearest proof texts in all of the Bible of the deity of Christ. The one who stands next to the father, that is to be stricken down by the father, is the son. The son who is God from God, light from light. True God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, as the Nicene Creed tells us. He's consubstantial with the Father. He shares in that one divine essence with the Father and the Spirit. All of what it means to be God. Jesus Christ is, so that means that this shepherd is a divine person. This shepherd is a divine person. He is the second person of the Trinity. It is the Son who receives the divine justice of wrath. The Father says, Awake, O sword, against my Son. And in the fullness of time, that one Son, eternal Son, the Son by nature, assumes a true human nature. Jesus Christ is very God of very God and very man of every man. He is a, and this is, and you have to understand this here. It is a divine person. It is God that assumes a human nature without casting off all of what it means to be God. He is a divine person. He adds to himself all of what it means to be human. He talked like us, walked like us ate like us, slept like us, got weary like us. He was truly human, but he was also truly divine. He was God from God. And saints, it is essential that our mediator be truly man. For the one who sinned, Adam, when he sinned, he sinned in our nature. And in order for us to be redeemed, we needed one to take on the very nature that sinned against God. If Christ was only to be partially human, then we are only partially saved. If Christ was not to take on a reasonable soul and flesh, the same reasonable soul that we have and flesh, then our flesh and our reasonable soul is not forgiven. So it is of utmost importance that our mediator, that our redeemer be of man. But don't lose this point as well. It is also essential that our mediator be truly God. We can't have a mediator without him being truly God and truly man. And I think verse 7, saints, points to the necessity Hear that. It points to the necessity of the shepherd, or the, of the divinity of the shepherd. It was necessary that our shepherd, that our mediator be God. 
We aren't to lose sight of this. If we were to have any hope of reconciliation, our Savior needed to be divine. He had to be equal with the Father and the Spirit. And let me just give you three reasons why. And let's take the example on the cross. Why did, why was it necessary that our mediator be truly God? Let me give you three reasons why. And we'll take the cross as our example. Number one, and these are so essential, saints. If you don't get anything from this sermon, get these three reasons why. Number one, the divinity of the shepherd is essential so that he might sustain the blow of divine justice. The divinity of the shepherd, of our mediator, was essential so that he might sustain the blow of divine justice. We read in this verse that God, the Father, sword has been called for, and he's going to strike down his sword on his son. Where does he strike down his sword on the son at? It's on the cross, is it not? On the cross, the Father strikes down his son. The entirety of God's wrath is poured out upon his son. And because it is so, the divinity of the shepherd is of utmost importance that he might sustain that full, infinite wrath of God. Hear this, saints. On the cross, the infinite wrath of God against sin will be placed upon Christ. We all agree with that. The fullness of wrath and fury against sin, the anger, the hate, and all of the judgments of hell and eternal damnation is the sword that would strike down the shepherd. All of that. But if Christ was only a man, if he was only truly human and not truly divine, then he could not sustain the full weight of divine judgment. In his humanity, he would be utterly destroyed if he was not truly God. If Jesus Christ on the cross only died in his humanity, which he did. But if that humanity was not united to his divine person and nature, then he could not sustain the full wrath and onslaught of God. But praise be to God. That Christ was truly God. He was truly God. All of what it means to be God, Christ truly was. He was a divine person. The base of his person was divine. And his humanity was in union with his divine nature and person. There was never one time, saints. There was never one time, one second, when his human nature was apart from his divine nature. It was always in union with his divine nature and person. His divinity, saints, hear this, his divinity is what kept his human nature from being utterly destroyed by the wrath of God. The divinity of the Son upholds the human nature. His divinity is what kept his human nature from being utterly destroyed by the wrath of God. The Westminster Larger Catechism makes this point, hear this, it says in question 38, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? So it's asking, why should our Savior be God? Answer, it was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from seeking under the wrath of God and power and death. It was essential that our Savior be divine because it is his divinity that kept his human nature from sinking under the wrath of God. 
simply put on the cross, the infinite wrath of God was poured out on the finite human nature of Jesus Christ. We all amen that. He only dies according to the nature that is a, that is a, a, a accustomed to dying, and that is according to his human nature. But the infinite divine nature is what, is what, is what's upholding his person. It's his divinity that's upholding his person. That is why Christ on the cross can say, into your hands I commit my spirit. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And I have the power to pick it up again. How does he have that? Because he is a divine person. Again, why was it necessary for the shepherd to be divine? In order that when that sword of justice and wrath strikes down his person, He is not utterly destroyed. But he says exactly what he, what he said back in the gospels that he has the power to lay his life down. And he has the power to be, raise it up again. The necessity of the shepherd to be divine is important in order that he might sustain the sword of eternal justice and wrath. Praise God that on the cross Christ Although he died according to his human nature, it was his divine nature that was upholding his person. That he was not utterly destroyed by this fury and wrath and hell and damnation of God. But on his own accord, he commits his spirit to the Father. Second reason why it was necessary for the shepherd to be divine is that the sword would be fully spent upon him. The second reason why it was important that the shepherd be divine so that the sword of the father would be fully spent upon him. Or we can say that Christ may fully exhaust the wrath of God. That he may fully exhaust the wrath of God. You see, saints, if Christ was simply a man, he would have not been able to fully satisfy the wrath of God. In order for the entirety of God's wrath, the whole of guilt, to be expended upon Christ, he had to be divine. And saints, this truth helps us answer this fundamental question of all of Christianity. How can an infinitely just God be reconciled to a people who deserve an infinite punishment? Maybe you've asked that question before to yourselves, but how can an infinitely just God be reconciled to a people who deserve an infinite punishment? We are not infinite. We are finite. So how can we offer up to God an infinite punishment? The Roman Catholic Church says satisfaction comes through faith and obedience as well as participation in the sacraments and sufferings and purgatory. That's how reconciliation happens. That's how an infinite debt is paid to an infinite God. The Eastern Orthodox Church says we grow more and more like the divine in this life through mystical union, through the liturgy and sacraments until one day we are united to the divine. I know it's weird. What these two theories are really getting at is it is your job It is your responsibility. It is on you. You can do this through sacraments and the liturgy. You can do this through purgatory. 
You can do this as you go uh, grow closer and closer to the divine. You can do this on yourselves. What is this, saints? This is works righteousness. You can pay for the infinite debt that you owe to an infinite God by doing X, Y, and Z. But how can this happen, though? Again, the creator-creature distinction. We are finite. How can this happen? I got to go through an infinite amount of time in purgatory. I got to go through an infinite amount of, of, of services and sacraments in order for me to pay the infinite uh, punishment that I owe to God. I'm creaturely. I can't do this. Since we cannot deliver ourselves from God's just anger, what hope is there for us? The canons of Dort give us this answer. Since, however, we ourselves cannot give this satisfaction or deliver ourselves from God's anger. Hear this. God, in his boundless mercy, has given to us a guarantee, his only begotten son. Who was to be made sin and a curse for us in our place on the cross. And in order that he might give satisfaction for us, he gives it, not us. But I like the Apostle Paul's answer much better. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father gives to us the one who is equal to him. The one who is by nature the Son suffers on our behalf so that we might become adopted sons of grace. How are you a son of the Father? You're a son in the Son. And this is the scandalous mystery of the gospel, is it not? How can, how can I pay an infinite punishment to an infinite God the scandal of the gospel is this. By faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone. And it is all by grace. And we also, we also, we also say salvation is all of grace. But saints, do we know what that really means? It is all of grace from our perspective, is it not? But it was none of grace for Christ. He earns for us grace. Because he went through wrath. He went through all of what it means for God to be angry with sin. He offers to God an infinite punishment so that that infinite just sword might be spent upon him. And lastly, saints, it is essential that the shepherd be divine in order that his sacrifice might be sufficient for all. It is important that the mediator, that the one who was hanging on the cross be divine in order that his sacrifice might be sufficient for all. And that word sufficient simply means enough. It means adequate. That Christ's sacrifice was enough. He truly did enough. Again, we ask the question, how can an infinitely just God be reconciled to a people who deserve an infinite punishment? How can this happen? 
It is because Christ is an infinite sacrifice. How can an infinitely just God be reconciled to a people who owe an infinite punishment to God? Because the one who stands in the middle between us and God is of infinite value. Not because he's human, but because he's divine. Christ, who in his infinite and eternal being is giving worth, he's giving value to his human soul as he bore the wrath of God in his body on the cross. He is able to offer to God a sacrifice of infinite worth. That is why the Bible tells us the blood and bulls of goats could not take away sin because it wasn't an infinite sacrifice. There was no divinity in those bulls and goats. Those, blood, those bulls and goats were not divine. But the perfect lamb was. He was truly God. Christ is able to appease the infinitely just wrath of God by offering up something that is far more valuable. His infinite self. An infinite sacrifice. One drop of Christ's blood is enough. One drop. One drop of Christ's blood is enough to redeem an infinite amount of sin. It is because Christ is divine. The writer of the book of Hebrews can say, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One single offering. He perfects us forever. That is why there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. One sacrifice was enough because that one sacrifice was of infinite value. Friends, hear me when I say this. Throw your merits away. Throw it all away. Throw your ascetic living away. Throw purgatory away. Throw it all away. Christ's sacrifice was enough. When he said it was finished, there was a reason why he said it was finished. It was finished because there will never be one who could properly offer to God that which is of infinite worth and value. The sword of the father was fully spent on his son. And friends, the glory of this is that there is nothing that you can ever do, say, or be. There is nothing you ever done or said or have been that can lessen the infinite worth of Christ's sacrifice. There is nothing that you could do or be or say that can diminish or heighten the infinite value of Christ's sacrifice. It's all paid for. It's done. And saints, this is why our shepherd needed to be divine. So that he can offer to God a sacrifice that would save his people to the uttermost. Not for a season. You might ask, how can I be justified for all eternity? 
Because Christ offered up a sacrifice to pay the full debt that we owed. And because of him, we are safe. We are secure. And as we move on in this verse, I just want to highlight one last thing. The verse reads like this. Verse 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. If you haven't noticed by now, but who is doing the striking? Who strikes down this shepherd? It is the one who has called forth his son. It is the heavenly father that strikes down his son. It is the heavenly father that strikes down his son. Uh, here are these words. The 19th century preacher Octavius Winslow has said it best. He says, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the father for love. It was the father for love that strike down his son and saying to him, we consider the cross. How often do we just view the cross from one perspective? And all we see on the cross is how much Christ loves us. Do we not? We, we hyper crystallize the cross as if it is all about Jesus. And that's all of it is. And we lose sight of the father. Do we not lose sight of the Father when we consider the cross? When we consider the cross, saints, and the message of the cross, it's not Christ is dying so that the Father will love us. He's not dying so the Father can can now look upon us and say, yes, they are my people. He's not trying to get the Father to love us. But on the cross, Christ is screaming, Look how much the Father loves you. He's not trying to earn the Father's love for you. He's trying to show you how much the Father loves you. This is how much the Father loves you. That he would send his son and strike down his son. The cross, yes, is about Christ, but it's also about the Father. For God so loved the world, as we quote so often, that he gave his only begotten son. Who is God in that scripture? It is the father. For the father loved the world in this way. For you Calvinists. He loved the world in this way. That he would send his son. To redeem us. But I think the apostle, the apostle Paul sums this up best. When he says in Romans 8.32. He did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. It is the wrath of God that calls forth his sword. But saints, it is the love of God that calls forth his son. The father out of love sends his son to save his people. But although it is the father who sent the son and is, and although it is the father that strikes down the sons, it is your sin that hung that eternal one on a tree. The father sends his son. He strikes down his son. But it is your sin that hung him there. Christ paid the debt that we did, that he did not owe saints. And we receive that which we do not deserve. And as we come to the end of our sermon, I just want to give you two practical ways, takeaways, two things that we can 
uh, take and we can uh, think about, consider, and then live in light of. And number one, in light of this great redemption that we have in Christ, in light of this infinite sacrifice that Christ has offered to his Father, and I think it's fitting in light of what we've been hearing in these Genesis sermons, how we have seen the God's full wrath and justice on all display. I say to you, if you are in Christ, with all exclamation points, stop sinning. Stop sinning. When we consider what Christ has offered on the cross, why would we go back to the very thing that he has died for? We are not trying and we should stop trying to resuscitate that which Christ has killed on the cross. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the people of Noah's day. Remember Cain. Remember Adam. Stop sinning. Saints, the wrath of God is real. God's justice is real. His sword is real. The psalmist says in Psalm 720, 12. But if one does not repent, and hear these words, if one does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent and strung his bow. Forsake your sin if you're in Christ is what I tell you. Forsake all of your sin if you are in Christ. Cut off your right hand. Pluck out your right eye. All of those things, friends, it is far better to enter heaven with missing body parts than to enter hell whole. Do what you have to do so you can not sin. Listen to these powerful words of Samuel Weatherford. It's the last quote, but this is a quote that I, I, I try to remember and try to recite. He says, they that counts little of sin counts little of God. The willful sinner who takes sin into his bosom is cruel to his maker. And hear these words and print them into your soul, heart, and mind. If Christ be your husband and you his wife, then sin slew your husband. Sin cut your husband. It killed your husband. Will the knife love, will the wife love the knife that cut her husband's throat? If it is sin that hung Christ on a tree. And if you keep sinning, then why are you loving the very thing that killed your Savior? The last practical takeaway is if you're in Christ, understand this one essential truth, and that is Christ paid it all. Jesus Christ paid it all, everything. Because Christ is the God-man, he is able to fully absorb the blow of divine anger. Because Christ is the God-man, he is able to offer his Father a sacrifice that you can never offer, a sacrifice that is sufficient. Where the Father looks upon the Son and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. The sword of justice was fully spent on Christ. So Christian, I say to you this morning, don't ever fear, don't ever wonder, don't ever think, don't ever worry, don't ever ask yourself, did Christ do enough? 
Saints, if that is you, remember the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Let's pray.